Welcome to another episode of Adoption, The Making of Me. I'm Louise Brown. And I'm Sarah Reinhardt. Make sure to find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as Adoption, The Making of Me podcast. Also, we have a Patreon page if you want to support us as we continue telling these important stories. You can find that at patreon.com and search adoption colon the making of me. Again, that's patreon.com search adoption colon the making of me. And please remember to subscribe, share and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Welcome back to Adoption Making of Me. I need to address an elephant in the room for the people that may be watching on YouTube. And that Uh-oh. would be my weird hair because I have. <laughs> I was made- like, uh oh, what are we addressing? Is it about me? <laughs> it would be because I decided to try to bring my hair back to life and not use heat on it for a while. So. What's funny about that is I sort of have the same hair today. (laughs) Neither of us touched our hair today. My vanity precluded everything else today. So just had to get that out there. When you said that, I was like, "Uh uh-oh, what have I done? That's an adoption response, right? (laughs) (laughs) Which which is is apropos for for this chapter about guilt and shame and blah, blah, blah. So having said that, Louise... Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, a te- the chapter is titled "Issues." We're on chapter eight: issues of guilt and shame, power and control, identity. And Louise, I would love for you to open. Here we that. go. And we're once again reading just "The Primal Wound" by Nancy Verrier, and she will come on our podcast and tell us exactly how she says her name. Yes, Nancy we are manifesting this. Verrier. So this chapter, as Sarah said, is about guilt, shame, power, control, identity. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much anyone listening to this podcast, adopted or not, is going to go, oh, you know, everybody has this, but yeah. there's some stuff. So it starts off with guilt and shame. And of course, as she does, she's really a, a great writer, I think, because she really puts the zingers right yeah. at the beginning. Don't you think? Really, where it's like, oh my God. Like yeah. the first paragraph, I'm like, oh, here we go. I got to sit down and get my cup of coffee. Okay. So guilt and shame. Guilt is another issue for adoptees. Actually, while guilt is often predominant for both birth and adopted mothers, it's probably shame, which is felt most by adoptees, which I thought was interesting because I always have a guilt complex, but it might be a shame complex. Oh, and I have deep shame. Yeah. I mean, we're going to get into that. Yeah. What is the difference between them? The easiest way to understand this is to think of the difference between doing and being. This was, I thought, really a great way to introduce this. I thought so too. One may feel guilty for what one has done or caused, but shame is for who one is. Shame is connected to an adoptee's belief that he or she is unlovable. He is ashamed of who he is. That's big. It's so, the timing of this is so... Interesting because I was on the phone with a friend of mine here in Kansas City talking to him last week and it it got really deep and, and vulnerable and I just started crying and I was just like, I when will this burden of shame and my and self-worth ever change in me? You know, and mm-hmm. it feels like no matter what I do, I carry that inside, like this disgust with myself. Yeah. That and we've talked about this together. But, and I think you more than me have this a little, and I think comes from stuff that's happened with you and your dynamic. And I have a big guilt complex and I could never figure out if it was because we're diet Catholic, Episcopal, or, you know, I come from a long line of guilters, which we do, but I really have a deep sense of like, 
oh, I'm doing something wrong or I'm not lovable or I'm not, you know, and I've really worked on that and come to a place where I don't feel that. But if I get vulnerable about something, I go there pretty quick. It's like the ugly thing comes out. Like I'm just, I'm not worthy. (laughs) And I wonder if you can't really work on it until you have someone to mirror it with you, you know, like a person that, that, you know, but then the double-edged sword is like, Yes. Somebody's seeing that, you know, so I don't know. It's, and, it's, and I feel like we're, we're, I feel like this podcast, which I didn't know would happen, but I knew we'd have growth through the podcast. Whenever you do a project or anything, you have a growth, right? And we've had growth with our business and, you know, we went to business school without going to business school. Let's open a business. We don't know what we're doing. So it's like, yeah, this has been such growth in me. I mean, I feel like at the end of our podcast um, with our guests and with our discussions, I'm like, Oh, and then, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's cathartic. It's cathartic. That's a good yeah. word. Well, there's so much in this. You want to go there, next? Cause <laughs> so, it, well, I thought this is this, it's still early in the chapter, but I highlighted there is no way for others to convince adoptees that they are wonderful, oh. lovable, beautiful people. If they get that gentle, steadfast love and consistency of, of availability from those who love them, they may begin to trust in the possibility of their own goodness. Um, I feel like I had that. So I have that, like I had the strongest thing you can have that I underline that too. It's strong because I feel like I got all, all the best stuff you can get from my parents, even my brother and my surrounding family. It's just, and you still have it though. And they get into this later, how we found some parts that really identify with each of us. <laughs> We're like, yes, oh, yes. <laughs> Louise, let's circle. This is Louise. This is Sarah. So it's, um, there's also this little section along that line where the adopted parents, no matter how, when they, the more people tell you how special, wonderful you are, it can actually be worse for you. I thought because people go overboard to be like, you're wanted, but then you start thinking, oh my God, I'm not living up. And Yes. That, there was a, a man named Bill who said, I was a throwaway. Who's going to love me? Deep down, he thinks that. Even though he knows that's not his parents, didn't throw him away. They couldn't raise them. It's in there. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, there, that made me remember something I highlighted, which the lack of personal history is a handicap for the adoptee because the importance of knowing one's past before planning for the future In an attempt to do this, some adoptees tend to identify with their perception of the birth parents, especially the mother who is sometimes perceived as young and promiscuous or a member of royalty. The idea that she was probably an ordinary, vulnerable, and confused young person, a great deal like the adoptee himself, is not usually one of the fantasies he has about the birth mother. (laughs) I mean, and I remember I told you, I I mean, I fantasize all the time about either she, you know, she was super young and in, in... whatever. Or she was like part of this very wealthy family that would come along and save me one day or, you know. You you completely, you said that. It was like a, I forget the word, but you were like, definitely your family was royalty and they're going to come rescue you. Yes. (laughs) I thought my family were the, were the Astors for some Oh yeah, the Astors. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't really have that actually. (laughs) But that's, I love that. That's a cute children's book right there. <laughs> when you said that, that I think that was in the part about control. Was it? Cause there's this whole, power, yes. there's this whole section about power, mastery and control. And one thing that I thought was interesting about that was not having your past. When you get into the teen years, 
is why a lot of kids act out because they don't have control on their past. And so as much as, you know, I watched my brother who's five years older, he, he had that, he had that thing where you're part of this group. And of course I was part of that group too. No one made me feel like I was not part of that group. They went overboard to make me just know I was loved, but inside, you know, you're not part of that group. And so come teen years, you're like, what group do I go to? Let me glam on. And like, you know, I did a lot of that in my middle school years. Like I'm insecure. Let me go here. Let me go here. Let me find my power or whatever, my control, you know, control is a big thing with adopted kids, as we know. Yeah. And I was a chameleon. I just floated from group to group. I could fit in with anybody because I needed to adapt to my surroundings, no matter what it was. I didn't have a sense of self. So yeah. I adapted. The self and, was the group you were glamming onto. Yeah. Or with boys, yeah, men later, like the way I behaved and, you know, falling right into that trap of the adoptee. And then um, here comes the shame, right? Like, it's, And then the shame, because you continue to do behavior that's even say, that's what, another thing I have. The, the adoptees themselves have some sense of the outrageousness of their behavior, yet they seem unable to stop themselves. Yes. Yes. And they even go as far as, to, that's exactly right here. They also talk about the adoptees become isolated and detached in their families and can act out to their parents who are so loving and the parents are like, what happened to this beautiful little child I was raising? All of a sudden, they're so, and they don't know why they're doing it. They're like, I love my mom and dad, but I have to hurt them. It's a weird, it's because they've been scarred really young. I mean. I just had this memory. And I know I wrote a, I wrote a story about this babysitter, but it's only now that I'm like identifying. So we had this chalkboard with our names. It said Sarah, Todd. David, Mike, you know, in order mm -hmm. of ages. And you'd get a mark on the chalkboard if you did something <laughs> wrong. And so mine was like, you know, mark, 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 mark on it. <laughs> Todd's was mark, 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 mark. Mike and David, like hardly anything. And, you know, I, I don't know if I ever thought like, is that because we're adopted or, you know, but, <laughs> but now that I'm looking back, like it's just so <laughs> Todd and I acted out. Yeah, uh, you were acting out. Even though we were young, you know, so. Poor guy. You're like the little, the little good kids and the bad kids. <laughs> yes. Those adopted kids were bad. <laughs> we have other guests on who actually Our, talk about this, <laughs> their family <laughs> dynamics. I think it's really, I actually thought what was interesting about this too, is I, I'd be curious to ask my brother who I don't think would like to come on the podcast, but there was a, a part where they, I was thinking the reverse because they're always telling you you're special or you're great. Does it affect the other child? Like in my brother and I's dynamic tour, he's why am I not so special and great yes. hearing that all the time? And I wonder that about him because he was older. So, and, but he wasn't that much older. He's still a child. Is he absorbing messages of like, well, how special here? I'm just. Yeah. Similar probably to growing up with a special needs sibling, you know, yes. that, that gets all the attention, you know, that even. Yes. So it, it's not a choice to feel that way. It's just a byproduct. That's why, that's why siblings are important to have, you know, we're going to get siblings on our show. And I think it's important to have that perspective as well, yes. because they hurt uh, too. Yes. I mean, the whole thing, this, as she gets into it, there's another part here. Hold on. Well, I didn't grow up hearing how special I was. That must be a Midwestern attribute. <laughs> just do not praise, period. <laughs> Don't praise. Yeah. Don't praise. It. I'll get a big head. Yeah. And both my parents were big praisers. Mostly my dad was a big praiser. My mom too. She's Midwestern. So it came a little harder for her. 
but maybe because they didn't get a lot. I don't know if my mom got a lot of praise. They didn't, my father's side, they, he didn't get any praise. So he, he had a, not a great childhood. He had a loving childhood with his siblings, but hard parental childhood. So I think he was big on changing that dynamic. So I lucked out in that reason. Yeah. Well, I mean, my mom was very praising yeah. when I'd like, and still is, but she is, she's your biggest fan and she's listening. Hi mom. <laughs> <laughs> so there's also this part that I thought about with you about the sense yes. of identity. I mean, with both of us, but this part, I get to put your name. So that's yeah. <laughs> so there's a whole part about identity. And so that's when you talked about, they have no sense of history, the adoptee, and they get into this part where people may leave home or leave prematurely. The reasons vary for leaving home prematurely. Some adoptees leave as a result of being kicked out by parents unable to cope with the rebellion, which often becomes intolerable, even though these poor kids are hurting. Or the adoptees themselves have some sense of outrageousness of their behavior. They are unable to stop themselves. You said that, and they end up leaving their home life early. And I was like, wow, you went through some of this. Yes. Is that outing you too much? (laughs) No, no, no. I talked about it in the first episode about running away. Right. (laughs) And then also being, you know, so it was like a, it was a twofer. Like I left at 15, moved in with my mom, but then was on my own again at 17. So it was like a twice leaving home And I think about that because we've had children. I think about how young young that is, right? I can't even imagine that Becker being on his own at 15 or at 17. Any I of mean, the kids I know. Yeah. I can't, I can't, I'm like, you know, when we were at that age, we thought we were so old. We knew it all, of course. Yeah. But now I'm like, holy cow, right? I mean, That's- Becker couldn't even cook an egg at 15. <laughs> <laughs> Becker, I hope you can cook an egg now. Just let me know. <laughs> If you're listening, you better up your game in the cooking department. (laughs) Okay, and then I'm going to read the part about you, which I Uh thought was so interesting. There are some adoptees who deny being curious about their origins. This is seen by some professionals as an attempt to avoid upsetting the adoptive parents who want to maintain the illusion of a natural family. Some adoptive parents have a need to deny the adoption, or if not the adoption, the effect of the adoption on their children. That would be our family. Yeah, purpose. But it's funny. It's funny how they said some professionals, because the first time this really came up for me was in marriage counseling in my first marriage. And my ex-husband is a funny guy and we would leave there and he loved that this lady focused in on my adoption because it took me out of any problems. <laughs> took, the, took the highlight off of him. <laughs> she was fascinated by it. She must have read this book or had some training in it. So the minute she found out I was adopted, she's like, oh, and just constantly was like, but it started to make me think things because she was very well versed in things with adoption. And I thought, oh, I do have that denial thing. Cause I'd be like, I, that doesn't affect me. Why would that affect me? I was very like always really fine with being adopted. And I still am fine with being adopted. I love being adopted. And this is in no way in the, the podcast, you should adopt. Adoption's a beautiful, loving thing. It's more back then we didn't have the psychological tools. And so my family, we always talked about my adoption, how great I am, but that's it. There was no sense of like, we go beyond that. There might be people right. out there. Who am I? I've had some family dynamics where it's been brought up in like different hurtful scenarios later with other family things where you're like, oh, people do think I'm adopted. You know, they you hear things as adults, but yeah, 
in it, the part, it's funny you picked that. We talked about that, but there's a part where it says, often the death of an adopted parent or birth of his, his or her own biological child will bring on a deeper sense of the bewilderment and a wish to search for your parents. So I recently lost both my parents and that's been really hard. I don't want to tear up on that, but we now here we are doing this podcast and it's like, I'm feel free to explore it more. And yeah, something you couldn't have done. I really couldn't have done it. I I really couldn't have done it to this level. And then when I had Jack, it was another time with the birth of my son was the first awakening of, yeah, wait a second here related to this person. And what's his past? My past is his past. And yeah, you've had that too. So anyway, it gets in a lot of sense of identity here. (laughs) Yes. Did you read that part about where she had her own experience with her child? Like, I like how she yes. made this personal. Yes, I liked it too. And we get to hear her daughter's name, which is such a beautiful name, Giselle. Yeah, it's the first time we've really, I didn't think we'd heard that before. Should I read that part? And this is the author talking at the end, because I thought that was a, she's doing her own self-reflecting because this is her child was grown when she wrote this book. So it's like yeah. she wishes she knew these things, right? She said, in my own personal experience with my daughter, one of the most wonderful aspects of having her in my life, besides the fact of her being, is that she drew me out of my complacency. I was one of those adoptive parents who didn't believe I needed therapy, which I think is a big statement. After all, I was very functional and effective in all areas of my life until I met my failure in dealing with my daughter's pain. Yeah. (laughs) Right. I mean, so, yeah can't wait till we have her on. I can't either. I mean, that's, that's going to be special, but I think about that, you know, with your mom, my mom, as they got older, as they're getting older, your mom, what their pain, because they see us having our things. And my mom had saw it before she passed that I had things. So, and we talked more openly and I just don't think that generation was equipped with any of this, you know? Well, and there wasn't any discussion of it. Just here's a baby. Take it home, raise it. Yeah, it's a win-win. <laughs> you, got, you only got the most superficial of information about the biological parents, their height, you know, their age. That was it. Just a superficial information, non-identifying information is what they call it. So yeah. that's all I had until I met Tilda. So. Which is a very weird word in itself, non-identifying information. I know. That is actually what it says, which we should get one of those and show people. because Oh, just- I have one. I'll, I'll pull it out. Yeah. <laughs> To read it. Yeah. Yeah, I have it. Was there anything? No, there's, I mean, it's a deep chapter, but for time constraints, I'd say no, because we could talk all day about it. (laughs) We could talk all day about guilt and shame, power and control. And I go over to our house. We have a lot of fun. We talk a lot of (laughs) guilt. Bring a glass of wine or a bottle or two. (laughs) Actually a bottle. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my goodness. We're trying to get sponsors if there's a wine company out there. We love anyone listening. You. We'll even, we'll even drink and podcast. <laughs> yeah, we can be like, uh, or is there a lingerie sponsorship out there? <laughs> We're in our closets, ready to try things on. <laughs> Rescuity, adoption, it all goes together. <laughs> oh, so funny. <laughs> hand in hand. <laughs> anyway, this has been a really interesting chapter and thank you for my morning with my morning therapy with Sarah. Yes, I love it. I just, I look forward to it all the time. Could do it on a daily basis. Me too. Well, hopefully sure. soon we're going to be doing it on a weekly basis. Yes. <laughs> Patreon. 
Okay. <laughs> Bye. 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 Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Louise and I talked about it for months and we were intimidated until we heard about Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout is hands down the best way to launch, promote, and track your podcast. Your show can be online and listed in all the major podcast directories like Apple, Spotify, Google, and more. Podcasting isn't hard. Believe me, if Louise and I could figure it out, anyone can. We got a mic, some headphones, parked ourselves in our closets, and that was it. Buzzsprout did the rest. You get a great looking podcast website and you can track all of your analytics to see how your podcast is doing. So if you follow the link in our show notes, it lets Buzzsprout know we sent you and you get a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up for a paid plan. And bonus, you help support our show. So I'm really excited to introduce our guest today. I found him because reading an article about Steve Inskeep in the New York Times, I went through the comments section. Actually, I think it was an article about the comment section that they made a whole separate article. And I found our guest's comment and it was really, was really drawn to it and reached out to him and he agreed to be on the podcast. So that's all I'm going to say. I'm introducing you to Mick Smyre. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Sarah. It's a pleasure Welcome. to be here. So, Mick, we wanted to ask you, what is your adoption story? We know a little bit about you, but give us your background and start with why you're on this podcast. Sure. Well, I was born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana, and I started out life in a Catholic orphanage in New Orleans. My birth mother was there, obviously, when I was born. And after about 10 days, she went back to Texas, where she was from. And I uh, stayed in the orphanage for about six months. And then I was adopted by uh, the folks who raised me and grew up in that family in New Orleans till I went off to school and, you know, then work and stuff. So, but really when people say, where are you from? I always say New Orleans. So she was with you for 10 days. So did you have the experience then of having her in your life for those 10 days? I guess I did. I don't really remember that very well. Uh, yeah, well, of course. <laughs> although I do have, I, I do have a, a memory of the orphanage, which I can tell you about later if you're interested. But I later tracked down my birth mother. And unfortunately, she had died by the time I tracked her down. But I, you know, I, I met her, her mother, my grandmother, her four sisters and two half family, whole bunch of cousins, all of whom live in Texas. Yeah. Wow. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was just gonna say what what were the circumstances then that she came to be at the Catholic orphanage from Texas and sure. Trekked, yeah, yeah. So my, there. Yeah, yes. Yeah. How did how did that all happen? Well yes. my mom I now have tracked down my birth father also, so I now know the whole story. But that just happened. Uh, I tracked down my mom, my birth mother about thirty years ago. And just this year I tracked down my birth father. So wow. they were both working in West Texas, in Midland, Odessa, Texas, mm -hmm. in uh, 1949 or early 1950. And he was a petroleum engineer and she was working for an oil company. They were hanging out together. And I think the story I heard was that she was trying to break off the relationship and found that she was pregnant and did not tell him. My mother had 
was not raised Catholic, but she had converted to Catholicism during World War II because she was in love with a guy who was Catholic. He unfortunately died in the war. He was a pilot and got shot down and died in the war, but she stayed Catholic. So when she found she was pregnant, she did not tell her family, but she went to tell her priest, her parish priest. And he said, no problem. Here's where you go. Go to this Catholic home for unwed mothers and an orphanage in New Orleans, St. Vincent's. Uh, and um, that's what she did. Now, in 1950, 2% of white births were out of wedlock births. So this was kind of not a common event. Yeah. So she took that advice and went there, had me, and then went back to Texas. And I think my father, my birth father, never knew about me, as far as I know. I have the same situation. My birth father didn't know about me. Yeah. So backtracking, did you, I mean, cause this is fascinating. You, did you know you were adopted always? Like did your adopted parents? Have no, that? no, actually, you know, I'm a psychologist. So right. I'm, a <laughs> I'm a developmental psychologist. So I've studied, you know, how you're supposed to do this. My parents did it totally wrong. I had a sister who was also adopted. She was uh, four years older than I was. And she often sort of struggled with my my mom. So one day they were kind of grousing at each other. And my mom was taking her to a, a birthday party for a friend. And my mom, uh, as she dropped her off, said, oh, yeah, well, you were adopted. And so was your brother. And so, oh. she, so this, at that point, my sister was either 10 or 11. So she spent the whole birthday party in tears and then came home and she was still kind of crying. I said, what's wrong with you? And she said, well, I'm adopted and so are you. So that's how I found out I was adopted. And which is, by the way, not the way you're supposed to do it. No, uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> clearly. But and that, you know, gave a lot of messages about, well, you're not supposed to talk about this. Or right. There's a secret you're not supposed to tell people about and stuff like that. So did you confront your parents in that moment? I mean, what you were, what, six, six, seven? Six seven? Yeah. So what uh, did you do with that information? I don't remember confronting them. I probably asked them, what's the story? I was fortunate that I, I grew up with an aunt and uncle who lived first five years of life. We shared a duplex. They were downstairs. We were upstairs. And then they lived, you know, 10 minutes away. So I saw them a lot. They were like grandparents. And I'm sure I talked to my aunt about it more than I talked to my mom and dad about it. Uh, were you not close to them, your parents? I was, well, it's complicated. My mom was, was mentally ill. So mm. she was 50 when she adopted me. But she lied about her age to the adoption agency and to my dad. So not a good basis for a relationship. Right. Wow. <laughs> but, you know, I was pretty close to my dad. And, and over the years, we talked about adoption. And I had a sort of a summary of my adoption file that he gave me and, you know, that sort of stuff. So I knew, you know, I knew I'd been adopted from the uh, orphanage. I knew, I think I knew that they were from Texas. At least my mom was from Texas. And I knew that the orphanage had a, a file on me. We talk a lot about the different uh, things that you may have felt in childhood being adopted and not even maybe knowing that you're feeling them or that kind of thing. Did you and your sister have any of those kinds of like, oh, aha, we are adopted like moments or and how did your sister do with that? Like, well, we had we had different experiences. Mm -hmm. My sister's experience of adoption was very different because she had been in and out of the orphanage. She was adopt finally adopted at age three, three and a half. Mm -hmm. But before that, she had been in and out of the orphanage with her birth 
parents and grandparents, and it was a kind of chaotic family system. So I didn't have any of that. And I think she remembered some of that. Wow. That's a, so just, did that did that give her sort of a difficult path in life in general? Yeah, I think life dealt her a tough hand and she didn't play it well. So there, there were times when, you know, it was, it was it was hard for her, I think. A lot harder than for me. But still, you had six months of being you and you touched on having a memory about the orphanage. So I definitely, definitely want to hear that. Yeah. Well, several years ago. I was getting ready to go back down to New Orleans. I go to New Orleans any chance I get. And I was going Ugh, to love that place. I'm going to high school reunion. And I had made an appointment to go to the orphanage and talk to the social worker to see what I could find out about my file. This was before I had tracked my mother down. And I rarely remember my dreams, but when I woke up one morning before I was going down to New Orleans, I had this image of a room full of cribs from a crib's eye view. And I said, okay, I know what I'm working on. Okay, yeah, okay, great, got it. Day residue, adoption, got it, okay. So then I went down to New Orleans and I went to the uh, orphanage and the receptionist said, oh, the social worker will be with you in a few minutes. Go sit in the waiting room and you know she'll come get you. And this is an orphanage that was started in the 19th century. So there were paintings of sister that and father this. And, you know, and then eventually there were photographs of the nuns and the priests and and then there was a photograph of a room full of cribs, exactly like the image in my dream. Ah, and I don't, chills. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember. Uh, as far as I know, I was never back at that orphanage until I started this you know, search for my mother. Like growing up in New Orleans, I never went to that orphanage, even though I could have. It was right, you know, it's pretty accessible in the city. But anyway, I think that's my, I think now that that's my earliest memory is that uh, room full of cribs from a crib's eye view. That's actually, that's really <laughs> incredible. <laughs> that's yeah. crazy. Yeah. And did you, when you went back to the orphanage, did you feel any sort of like nostalgia for when you first got to your family? Do you remember any of that transition or nothing? I mean, you were very young, so I guess not. I was six months old. I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't remember it. A buddy of mine who's a writer, a guy named Mark Singer, who's a writer for The New Yorker. He's one of my college roommates. Anyway, Mark said, well, you have to write a book. And the book has to start with you staying at the orphanage, which now, which at that time was a Christian bed and breakfast. I think it was also a brothel because somebody was asking about hourly rates when I was checking out. But at any rate, <laughs> it's a New Orleans kind of thing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so I did, I went back and stayed at the orphanage for a couple of nights. And that was, that was kind of interesting. How did that feel? Did you have any kind of emotional reaction to it or was it just? Well, it felt, it felt strangely familiar. Parts of it felt strangely familiar. Some of the images, like this is a great old building built in the 19th century, brick, huge building. There was a slide that went from the second story down to the first story. That was the fire escape if you were oh. up on the second floor. And for some reason, that slide seemed familiar to me when I checked in. I said, oh, hmm, that seems familiar. But other than that, it was just kind of, it was a little strange, you know. It's now, by the way, been redone as a boutique hotel oh. and, and bar. I haven't been back. It's been redone, yeah. I have a lot of questions, yeah. but I, I keep focusing back on, so that your parents didn't adopt you until your mother was 50 and your father did not know she was 50. What, <laughs> what were these circumstances that they came to adopt you? Well. My mother couldn't have kids. 
and I wanted kids. And they'd already adopted one. They adopted my sister. They adopted a daughter. And so, you know, the American dream, have one yeah. of each. Right? So, uh, so was, I was this a second marriage or something? I mean, it, especially for 1950, it seems like that's. Well, they got married in World War II. He looked really good in his Navy whites. And he was a, <laughs> he was a, he was a pilot. And uh, she lived in Jacksonville, Florida, where he was doing training. And uh, they got married in the war. And then she moved to New Orleans where her brother and his wife, my aunt and uncle, lived. And so that's so after the war, they settled in New Orleans. And she just lied about her age at that time, probably for dating. And yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. People still and, do that. You know, love, love, <laughs> right. The World War II version of Bumble. <laughs> right. Love, love does strange things, you know. And I have, it's funny, I have, uh, some letters that my dad sent to my mom during the war. He was, he was in the Navy, he was a Navy pilot and he was in, uh, in Alaska and the Pacific theater. And they're really, you know, sweet romantic. Mm. Letters and, you know, and did you pursue, I mean, you may not know this or have you thought about it, but did you pursue your career? You can tell us what you do. And because of anything with your adoption or figuring yourself out or, uh, I don't think it was so much about adoption. I'm a clinical psychologist by training, mm -hmm. clinical and developmental psychology. I did specialize in aging and aging and mental health. And I, I saw that. Think, <laughs> well, I don't think that was random. I think, you know, I was no. trying to figure out uh, mentally ill elderly most of my life when growing up because my mom fit into that category. So I don't think that was random. Yeah. It, but it also happened to be when I got into that field, it was a pretty young field, clinical psych and aging. There weren't a lot of people doing that combination. And, and I realized this was in the early 1970s. I realized, oh, aging's not going away in my lifetime. So this is a pretty good area to be working in, not just to try to figure out my mom, but there were a lot of interesting and important uh, issues to focus on. Oh, yeah. Is your mom still alive? No, she, she died in the early 1990s. And your dad? Yeah, he he died. He predeceased her. He died in 1985. So you at six get told by your sister. And then then is there how did you next then deal with and your then we are. And then uh, yeah, we are. Right. But so, I mean, there's, there's a big chunk of time from when you went and found your birth mother. How did that play out? And what was your childhood like beyond that? Like, did, again, we taught we did talk about having those familiar connection that adopted people seem to have is just always feeling like something is amiss or right. a little bit different, not fitting in kind of. Well, I mean, in my case, I think it was an advantage because I had a mentally ill mother and I could always say, uh, well, not my gene pool, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that was part of the way I, I kind of dealt with that dysfunction. I didn't tell my friends about being adopted. I really didn't talk about it publicly until senior year in college, really. I was, wow. I, I was in a group and we were doing autobiographies. So for me, the big decision was, do I talk about adoption or not? That was like the, the critical issue. Do I, do I tell this group of 15 people about adoption? We uh, had another guest who touched on that. I mean, he said, you know, it wasn't, even when Sarah and I were raised, you didn't really just go out there and say you were adopted. I mean, because there might be right. something wrong with you. Are you adopted? It's kind of, it was a little bit looked down on. And yeah. so that's just right. fascinating that you brought that up. Well, yeah. But so for me, I think that was a big issue trying to decide, you know, to whom do I disclose that and that sort of stuff. 
And your family, your extended family must have known you were adopted and your sister. Yes. Yeah. Uh, my aunt, uncle, and, you know, mm -hmm. the whole family on both sides knew. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And did the, anybody ever discuss it with you guys or talk to you about it? Or was it just kind of a moot point in your house? Well, it's kind of a moot point. I think my aunt and uncle, whom I lived next door to, especially my aunt, my, I spent a lot of time with my aunt in my first four or five years because she was just downstairs. I think she was a source of unconditional positive regard. Mm. So she would talk about being adopted, but it like was no big deal. And, you know. Yeah. Made it we, normal. We wanted you and, you know, yeah. that sort of stuff. And then at what point, so was it your, after your senior year in college, when did you decide to start seeking out your biological parents? You know, I started looking when I was around 40. Maybe it was midlife rumination. I don't know. But I think uh, by that point, my dad had died and my mother was in a nursing home. She had uh, dementia later in life. So in some ways, I didn't feel like, I mean, my dad and I talked about it. So I, it wouldn't, I would not have felt I was betraying him by going to look or searching. But for some reason, I just didn't start looking until really around age 40. And then I that's I, actually kind of normal when we've, we found a lot of people really yeah, around 40 and I 50. Think, I think people look when they're ready for various mm -hmm. reasons, you know, and I've had friends who've, who've adopted and they've talked to me about, you know, how do you talk to your kid about it? But also when will my kid look? And I always say when they're ready, you know, and you can't really, I don't think you can predict that. Some of them may look earlier, but for me, it was around age 40. I have a buddy who's a lawyer and he was telling me about a case he had of a bigamist living with a third wife and, you know, hiding out and he used a private eye to track him down. And I said, yeah, I wonder if that private eye could track down my mother. And he said, I don't know, let's, let's find out. So I contacted this private eye in the Seattle, Washington. And how long do you think it took him to find my mother? So this was like 40 years after she had given me up for adoption. A day, two days. Two working days. <laughs> yeah, that's Two working and that's days. obviously pre-DNA <laughs> testing. And oh, yeah, this was before 23andMe and all that, yeah. Yeah. And he said, this was the part I did not find plausible. He said, well, a friend of a friend of his worked in the orphanage. I think really what happened was I paid for him to have a great weekend in New Orleans. Yes. And he bribed somebody <laughs> to read my record, you know, because in the, in the adoption file, my mom used her real name and her place of birth or where she was from. And it was a small farm town in the middle of Texas. So once he had that, he called the postmistress, talked to her. She knew everybody. She knew the whole family. She knew where my, my mother, unfortunately, had died by that point, but he knew where my mother, she knew where my mother was buried, knew where my aunts lived, you know, knew the whole family. So it was really a piece of cake for him once he, once the friend of a friend of his. Uh, <laughs> friend of up. a friend. How old was she when she gave birth to you? She was 28. Oh, so not young. She had been a, a stewardess. And then she, I think her mom said, oh, that's too dangerous. Why don't you like go work in West Texas? And her sister and brother-in-law were working in West Texas at the time. So she was out, you know, living with them and working for the oil company. And that's her using a real name. You know, you wonder if she wanted to be found one day and meet you. And that's sad. that. Well, it she only used her real name on one form. Oh, okay. And, and the rest, she used an alias. So she used the alias. Charlotte Upton, 
And my original name was Charles Charles Upton. I could have been Chuck Upton. Uh. <laughs> but, but fortunately, I got adopted. <laughs> I could have been Donna Lynn Dick. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> we have a lot of we've we've discussed our names. <laughs> yeah. How did she die? She died of a heart attack. She had a, a massive heart attack. She smoked and had high cholesterol that went untreated and high triglycerides. And so when I actually, when I tracked her down and there's a whole story about making contact with the family, because I can tell you that story too. But once I tracked her down and connected with the family, one of my cousins is a physician and she reached out to me and said, here's a family medical history that Uh, you might want to know about. So that was really nice. That's helpful. Yeah. It it is so helpful. And I think Sarah originally one of the comments that she read when you were on the on the New York Times part was that you were annoyed that you couldn't find there's not records for adoption. Well, yeah, at that time, and I think it's still the case that as an adoptee, I cannot gain access to my original birth certificate. Yeah. Now, I don't know. So the, when I get a birth certificate from Louisiana now, you know, for whatever reason, it shows up with my adoptive parents' names on it. Yeah, mine too. Yeah. So, and I don't know, even if I could unseal my original birth certificate, I'm not sure if my father's name would have been on there. I don't know. But as it turns out, I tracked him down in another way. So, okay. So tell us about the tracking down your mom and then your dad. I mean, we definitely want to hear (laughs) it. So my mom, so the private eye made it easy, right? He he found her. But then there began this mystery about my grandmother was in kind of poor health, mentally very sharp, but physically very frail, she, kind of frail. She was in her 90s. So then it was like, who can know this secret in the family? Mm-hmm. But it turns out that when my mother was having me over in New Orleans, the same grandmother was in the hospital at that time, 40 years earlier, and they thought she was going to die. And so brother, my mother's brother-in-law was a Mason in Waco, Texas. And the sheriff of Waco was one of his Mason brothers in the you know, Masonic Temple. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. And the sheriff said, oh, I'll find Claire. I can track her now. And sure enough, he did. So that brother-in-law, George, called Claire that and said, you know, your mom's ill. Call us tonight. Went home, said to his wife, found Claire. She's fine. She's going to call tonight. And I can't tell you anything more because it's a Mason secret. And his wife said, okay, that's the part I find kind of hard to believe. But yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but fast forward many years later, and he's dying of uh, COPD and emphysema. And so he calls in his daughter. Now, this is like my generation now. Mm-hmm. Calls in his daughter and says, just remember, Claire went to New Orleans in 1950. And he calls in his son, who at that time was about 18 or 19, and says, somebody in your generation needs to know Claire had a son in New Orleans in 1950. He then dies. Several years later, I contact their mother, who is the oldest living sibling of my birth mother. You following this? I know it's yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. I do. Yeah. A lot of moving parts here. Yeah. So I contact the oldest living sibling, and she says, "No, I don't think so, because you know my sister would have told me uh-huh. about this, and I, I never heard anything about this." So she gets off the phone with me, and I say, "Well, let me send you some pictures. Maybe I look like people." So she gets off the phone with me, calls her daughter, and her daughter says, "Well, you know." Claire went to New Orleans in 1950. 
Okay. Um, so then she calls her son and her son says, well, Claire had a son in New Orleans in 1950. And she goes, ah, and then I sent pictures and I, you know, I look like people. I, I, as they say in Texas, I do favor them. So, yeah. uh, so then once I did that, then the, then the, the family secret was like, okay, who gets to know and is grandmother strong enough to handle this news? So then they decided to tell her and then they decided to have a family reunion to, to, to meet me, to hear the guy who talks so funny. Cause I don't sound like anybody from Texas. <laughs> and so I went, my wife and I went down and uh, my grandmother brought out the family Bible and showed me Aww. that she'd written my name in it, you know, as her way of saying, you're one of us. Oh, yeah. she yeah. added your name to it. Yeah. That's not, it was really sweet. It's beautiful. Yeah. Did you feel any sort of familiarity with them? Well, you know, there are a lot of short people who look a lot like me. You know? <laughs> yeah, I think it was funny, Sarah. It was more, in a way, more emotional for them. Yeah. Because yes. The, uh, my mother had died 12 years earlier. And I evidently have mannerisms like her. I sound like her. And so for them, it was like seeing her again yes. in a different way. So that was pretty emotional for them. And, I had the I same experience as you. Same Did you? Exact. I met my biological family after my biological mom died when she was 27. And oh. so I met them when I was 32, but I look like her. I sound like her. And people would visibly break down right. talking to me and have to leave the room. Right. Yeah. And, and you're it, thinking, what did I do? <laughs> it's a strange thing to feel because you think I'm just me. Yeah. Right. But then you realize, I, gosh, you know. Yeah. And Louise, how, how old were you when you were adopted? I was a baby. I was a few days old. So you don't have any memory of that, your mom's looks and manner. No. And yeah, no. Yeah. So that's what happened for me. I mean, the folks in Texas have been very welcoming. That first meeting was a little strange because they were much more emotional than I was. Yeah. But that was, seems to be a, yeah, a recurring theme. We both too. Had I had I had the same thing when I met my. Yeah. So you know, and I have two half brothers and. Are you in touch with them and have relationships? And yeah, yeah, I am. And, and then I have a bunch of cousins. Almost all the cousins live in Texas. And at the time when I met them, all of them except one lived in Texas and that one lived in Louisiana. So they didn't. Oh. <laughs> Texas don't leave Texas. <laughs> well, that's I said, why, why are you all in Texas? And they said, well, Texas is as big as France. Yeah, they just—they don't leave Texas. I know. I know. I have a lot of Texan friends. Yeah, so it's really clear. If I had grown up with my mom's family, I'd be living in Texas, and which would be good. <laughs> so then I'm going to guess that you you found your dad through like ancestry or 23andMe, and yeah, what happened? I have a a cousin by adoption. You know, my 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 cousin from my dad's my the dad who raised me his, his family when she retired she decided her hobby would be finding my father Oh, for <laughs> so, you. <laughs> and so I said, okay. And so she said, the way we're going to do it is through genetic databases. This is just when things were getting started, you know, FTD just taking off. and, you know, Jed match and 23 and me ancestry. So I put my stuff out there and I kind of had low expectations. I thought it was, you know, a low probability event, but about a year ago, a little less than a year ago, maybe, I got an email from 23andMe saying you have a first cousin. And that's the closest match I'd ever had. That was yeah. really close. And I thought, whoa. And so I emailed the person on 23andMe platform, nothing, radio silence. And, you know, every now and then you get this, this message 
from 23andMe. Oh yeah, you have, you know, she's been on the on there. You have this first cousin. She's been active like a month ago or whatever. Radio silence. And then I have a friend who's a retired first grade teacher who always wanted to be a private eye. <laughs> Except she has ADD, so she's not real good on stakeouts. Uh- <laughs> but, but anyway, she was visit. We spent Christmas and New Year's with her and her husband. And I said, you know, six months, I got nothing from this first cousin. She said, give me that. <laughs> she went from 23andMe to Ancestry to Facebook, to others, social media, quickly put it together. This is not your first cousin. This is your niece. Oh. And her mother is your half sister. And her grandfather is your father. And so it, it all started to make sense when we looked at it that way. And so then began a process, which I was by now familiar with, because 30 years before I had done it with my mother, I had the same lawyer friend of mine write a letter, and this time to my father's family saying, I have a client who has reason to believe. He's not looking for money. It's not a scam. And we put enough information in the letter that they could Google me, they could Google him and his law firm, they could Google a bunch of stuff, the the orphanage, so they could see it was legit and now a boutique hotel. And so we sent off a letter. Unfortunately, we sent it right when, remember this year, Texas had a big freeze and the mm -hmm. power went out and Mm -hmm. the the grid went down. Yeah, I sent a letter via FedEx that took 10 days to get to Texas. But eventually it got there and it got there. And, you know, when you send a FedEx letter, they send you a text saying your letter has been delivered. So on a Friday afternoon, I got this letter of this text saying your letter has been delivered to at least one of the three half siblings. And I thought, okay, it's probably going to take them a couple of weeks to kind of process this among themselves. And because they've never heard of me, their dad didn't know about me. So there's no way they knew about me either. It's like cold call. (laughs) <laughs> cold call. Totally cold call. Mm-hmm. So within an hour, I get a text from this guy, from my half-brother, Toby, saying, we need to talk. <laughs> <laughs> so we arranged to talk. We talked the next day. And in this case, I was, you know, I was thinking, okay, I'm ready. I'm going to make the sale. I'm going to convince him that here's why I think it's true and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So we get on the phone and he says, I have a whole bunch of family history and stuff I'd like to share with you. So I'll send you. It's like he already he, he uh, believed he it. Sold. And the reason that that happened was I have a website. I do climate work, climate yeah. change work, trying to move people from anxiety to action on climate issues. So I have a, a website called Growing Greener, growing-greener.org. And on that website, there are pictures of me doing workshops. In fact, the last big workshop I did before the pandemic shut things down was at Duke. And I'm in this room full of 80 people. It's beautiful lighting. It's a beautiful room. You know, it's a great evening. And I'm just doing my thing, doing the workshop. And he said, well, I looked at your, I looked at your website and, you know, except you look exactly like our dad, except your hair is too long. Oh, my goodness. And he, <laughs> he, showed, he had no doubt. And he showed his pic, the picture to his wife and she said, you don't need genetic tests. <laughs> There's dad. <laughs> yeah, that's the guy. You, you know, yeah, absolutely. He's your father's son. So then I talked to the other two half siblings and they were also very welcoming and nice. I haven't, I haven't gone down and met them yet. In part, you know, the pandemic has made this kind of difficult, but I'm hoping to meet at least the older one who's now in Michigan this fall. We have plans to do that unless the variants and things change our plans. Is your father still alive? No, unfortunately he died uh, 20 years ago. 
Oh, one quick question because it stuck. Why didn't the niece answer your 23 right? <laughs> messages? You know, I kind of I don't know. I'm going to have to find that out. I think rude you know, millennial. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I think well, a first of all, she's busy. B, you know, who is this guy stalking her, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, really. And especially since nobody in the family knew about me. So like, who is this guy? And I, have the, I have the same going on. On Like she was sort of brokering, yes. making sure her mom got in touch with me, you know, because she was basically saying, yeah, this story's legit. He really did show up on 23andMe. You know, it's not both. <laughs> you know. But it would be fun to, to meet them. Mainly, I think, to hear stories about my dad and just what kind of guy he was and, and yeah. that sort of thing, you know. So clearly he stayed in Texas. So you both, you're biologically from Texas. If I had grown up in either of these families, I would have strong Texas roots. Yeah. Well, part of Texas. Texas. (laughs) They live in Fort Worth. Okay. My son lives in Dallas. Okay. There you go. And has it with his Dallas girlfriend. I'm like, are we going to leave Texas? Texas. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Well, Texas is as big as France. Yeah. Yeah. I I have a cousin on my mother's side who lives in Dallas. I also have a cousin, you know, we have a cousin in Austin and Midland, Odessa, say two half brothers in San Antonio, you know, it's, they're all over. Yeah. And are you going to write a book? You mentioned the book part. Is that something you're thinking about or is that more? I don't know. I kind of doubt it, but I might. Whenever I tell my story, you know, people are kind of interested because it is, you know, first of all, New Orleans is kind of an interesting place to grow mm-hmm. up. Uh, I love New Orleans. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a great town. And, you know, it has its challenges, but I'm in love with New Orleans. You know, I have a love affair. Love it's just, I can't be objective about the city. But I don't know. I mean, right now I'm really focused on climate change. I think that's a much bigger deal than my life. Climate change is, is, you know, it's real and it's happening. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I like are, how you're taking it from anxiety to acceptance. action. Yes, yeah. action yeah. and not... Yeah, I'm using psychology and design strategies to help people break the climate silence habit. Yeah. Most of us know something's going on, but we don't know what to do about it. So over 70% of Americans say, yeah, climate change is real, but only about a third ever talk about it with family members and friends. And so we found a way to help people talk about it and then take the next step and take some action. So So you do these workshops? Yeah, we do workshops and we develop materials for organizations. And since the pandemic, all of our materials are online so we can kind of custom design materials. For example, we've done some work. We're working now with a a university in the Netherlands and we've designed, we basically have a climate deck, a, a deck of climate action cards. So we designed a deck for this Dutch university that they're going to use with their first year student orientation to get their incoming students to be thinking about sustainability right off the bat as they, as they enter school. That's wonderful. And, and, and we're working with the university in, in Austria and Ireland and an elementary school in Shreveport, Louisiana, and a bunch of places, you know. That's good work. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Very good work. I'd love to actually sit in on it. I mean... Is there, do you have virtual workshops and? Yeah. Yeah. Well, s- drop me a note. We can, I'll tell you when we're, we're doing something. Um, I would love that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and the other thing we do is we train people in how to use these materials with their groups because it's really easy <laughs> and it's fun. What happens is people really enjoy it. Particularly, we have a, a elementary school deck of climate action cards and kids love it. Kids have a great time with it. And I know it works because grandparents steal the decks. 
Yeah. <laughs> Which is a good I was just thinking I want a deck. I that's know, me more, too. That's a market test. Well, go to growing-greener.org and you can buy decks, right? I, I will do that. It's be, and good gifts to give to people too, like right. as a way that's of starting a conversation. Yeah, a conversation. Right, exactly. Started. Yeah. Yeah. Good holiday uh, stuff suffers. Yeah, yeah I, absolutely. I'm going to do that. And you have kids? Yeah, we have two kids, a son and a daughter. And we have four grandkids, four grandsons, twin five-year-olds, a three-year-old and a two-year-old. Yeah. Sounds like you have a really good, busy, full life. Yes, I'm very fortunate. Yeah, I do. And yeah. it's nice that you can actually share with them too, the your biological side as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And also, like when our daughter was a teenager, she sometimes say, I was adopted. And I say, well, you can't use that one on me. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, right. Play another card. Right. Yeah. Yeah. At least, you know, even if we talk about even if you had the most, you know, perfect adoption scenario, which obviously you didn't, but just having that answer of, looking like somebody in the world, finally seeing yeah. people that well, you and, look and, like. And, you know, and, and when I reached out to my father's family and they sent me pictures, I get it. I mean, yeah, I see where that look comes from. Yeah. Uh, curly hair, mustache, got it. Yep. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, my, and my aunts on my mother's side, you know, when I, I'd say, well, can you remember anything? And I say, yeah, what was that guy's name? Short guy, curly hair. What was his name? You know, so now <laughs> I know, but you know, <laughs> anyway. Yeah, that's great. Well, this is very lucky. Thank you so much for sharing with us and coming on today. Thanks for having me, Louise and Sarah. I've enjoyed it. Okay, we'll follow up with you after. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. See you. Thank you, Mick. Bye. 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 So today we're actually ending with a little bit something different. It might be a little bit awkward. We've decided to have a wrap up at the end of each episode and each guest at the suggestion of Sarah's mom and Sarah's cousin, Teresa, which we thought that's a brilliant idea. Yeah, really is a good idea because, you know, we interview these guests and then we walk away from the episode and we never talk about them again. So we just thought maybe that is a good idea to to kind of discuss what we related to with our guests this week, because everybody has something to relate. We relate to everybody in our podcast in some ways. And Louise, you mentioned something when we were kind of just chatting I did. I was thinking, here's Mick, and he's this accomplished man, you know, a professor, and he has a wonderful business that he's running for the environment. And if you looked at him, you think, oh, this guy, he's got family and grandkids, and he has everything together, which he does. But he comes from some internal pain that you would never guess that we all are part of a club that we've talked about. And it kind of triggered some things with me because I'm one of those people that think everyone thinks, oh, it's a, a certain package. And you have this and you're successful and you have the greatest parents and all these things, which I do. But a lot of things have been coming up for me because of this podcast things. I remember feeling about myself and not fitting and being very insecure and not thinking anyone loved me. And that's coming back to me a lot lately because I've been going through those feelings again and just kind of they rear their ugly head and you're like, wow. So you can never just look around and see, oh, Here's this person, but underneath, you don't know what's bubbling under. Yeah, Mick was so interesting just because you could tell he has incredible coping mechanisms in place. And, you know, and then when you sit down and talk to people and you really dig 
below the surface. And, you know, not just adopted people, obviously, but in our tribe, so to speak, because we Mm -hmm. are a tribe of adopted people. It feels like we have an innate trust to be able to talk to each other. And that's what I really feel grateful for this podcast in finding this someplace we belong and can have these conversations and know that people know that they know how we're feeling. So that's been a really great. It's been amazing. Like Mick gets on and we don't know each other and we know about him and he knows about us. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I really, I feel really connected to him and connected to all of our guests that we've had on. Yeah. You know, and I do feel like we're part of this amazing club. I mean, adopted people do have their own feelings like divorce. People go through divorce or people have had deaths. You know, we have every person I've ever met that's adopted. We instantly say, oh, I have that too. Or I have this too. And and you kind of understand something about each other that's different than anything else, you know, that I have with other people. Yeah. It's like a a bond, an immediate bond. So I really loved, I like that we're doing this and I think this is a great idea. I did too. I loved it. And I thought Mick was just a charming, wonderful man. But we do here's have something great. Yes. Sarah's going to tell us about. Exciting is that we manifested. We're going to have a special episode. Our next episode is going to go against our format. We're not going to discuss a chapter. We can't give it away at this moment. We're just going to tease you with tune into the next episode. It's going to be a totally special episode with two guests and we manifested them. We, we sure did. And this is <laughs> going to be great. So don't miss it. That will be August 24th. Yes. will be the air date for that. Mark it down. You subscribers continue to subscribe. <laughs> Keep subscribing, sharing, reviewing, rating. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening today. And remember, if you'd like to share your stories or suggest any guests for our show, you can find us on all the socials at The Making of Me podcast. And again, we have a Patreon page so that we can continue to bring these great adoption stories to you. So if you want to find that and donate or contribute in any way, find us at patreon.com searching adoption colon the making of me. Bye. See you next time.